So this is the Visakha Puja day and the occasion to reflect on the most important events of, of the Buddha's life, the historical Buddha, his birth, his enlightenment and death. And of course, relate this to to our lives because we all have been born, and we will all die. And whether we're enlightened or not is another thing. That's the challenge, isn't it? Between those two points of birth and death is the opportunity or the occasion for enlightenment. Or, in other words, to see the to know the truth of the way it is and to be free from ignorance. So it's very uh, significant that in the Theravada tradition they have all three events on the same day. Uh, it's uh, according to the historical mind, a Western mind that thinks in terms of uh, historical facts, then it, it seems like it's too neat a package. To, uh, that he could have been born on the full moon of May, enlightened on the full moon of May, and died on the full moon of May. <clears throat> and whether he act, these, were, these are accurate uh, facts, I, I have no idea. But in terms of uh, reflecting on Dhamma, then it's a very useful uh, way of doing it, because these are the important events of human experience. Birth is uh, something that's happened in terms of physical birth. So we, we uh, just by recognizing, uh, by contemplating our own birth, the result of the, our present ex conscious existence is, is due to having been born. So birth is the beginning of experience in, in a conscious form on this planet. It's the very beginning point in which we come into the world as a separate conscious entity uh, that will live one's life to who knows what age because death is possible at any time. Uh, in uh, infancy to uh, up to 120 years old um, it's possible for some humans to extend their lifespan. But the, but the birth, of course, is the beginning, and anything that begins must end, must cease. So death is the ending of that which began. Now this is a reflective teaching. It's just contemplating the most obvious uh, facts of life. Uh, this isn't controversial or 
or isn't something that uh, anyone would, would disagree with. But sometimes uh, what is most obvious in our lives we, we seldom notice or pay any attention to and look for more exotic, more kind of remote, arcane possibilities of human experience uh, because those uh, seem more interesting or because they're far away or they're extreme we, we oftentimes use those as our focus. So sometimes in the, even the word enlightenment sounds like some kind of highly attained state uh, that is a very difficult and very remote possibility for most of us. When we, when we think about it, we, we see ourselves in uh, and restrict ourselves, bind ourselves to very coarse perceptions and how we look at ourselves, how we feel about ourselves is determined very much by our experience of life, ethnic background, education, class, uh, generation, uh, gender. All these things affect our, how we see, how we perceive ourselves in this world. So in a modern country like Britain, for example, we have, uh, you know, a country that has a long history, has been uh, a world power, uh, is still very influential, and uh, has a strong cultural identity of its own. And the sense of being British, or being European, or being Christian or being Buddhist, these, these are the kind of identities that we acquire through, um, through cultural conditioning. We aren't born with any of these perceptions. So when, when a child is born, it doesn't see itself in any way, it doesn't have a vision of itself as a separate entity. It has intelligence and feeling, it feels, it's sensitive, uh, it has uh, instinctual intelligence, so it knows what to do when it's hungry and so forth, how to survive. Uh, it has consciousness, but it still has not been acculturated. It still doesn't perceive itself as being even a male or a female, not to mention being English or Indian or European or Asian. At the time of the Lord Buddha in India, this was a time where uh, I don't think even people in India identified themselves as Indians. <laughs> That's a perception that came along later. <laughs> and uh, I think that was uh, that, though I don't think the Buddha thought of him, had, had, was educated to think that he, he was an Indian. In fact, he, he was a, a son of the Sakyan clan as an ethnic identity, which was a small kingdom in, in uh, Nepal. So the, that was the ethnic identity, and, and then the, the world around him uh, with the perceptions that he had, being a prince, a son of a king or a ruler, 
and all the education and and cultural uh, acquisitions that would come to somebody of that class, of that race, of that time and that place. Now, uh, the Buddha, before he was enlightened, uh, began to, or the, the, the young prince, upon uh, questioning and looking at his life more closely, even though he had maybe all the social uh, advantages that anyone could possibly have at that time, uh, still he was aware that, that this was, even if you have the best, there's still something missing. There's still some questions unanswered. There's still something, some lack in one's life. And yet, uh, he was brought up in a style that was uh, deliberately uh, chosen to, to uh, delude him, to make him uh, just enjoy life, to, to get thrilled by the, by the sense realm, by the beautiful things that one experiences through senses, by the excitement of warfare, of weapons, and, and of uh, intellectual abilities, and, and the life of a court, and summer palaces, winter palaces, and, and all the rest. And yet even, even with the, the best of the conditioned world, the Prince Siddhartha still felt that this is, uh, this is not, even though I have all this, there's still something that I don't know that I need to know. And of course the, the traditional story of the young prince leaving the palace uh, and uh, seeing an old man walking and then a, then a sick person and then a corpse and then a, a monk sitting under a tree, the four messengers, the four devadutas, were the things that uh, kind of awakened the young prince. Now these are called devadutas or heavenly messengers. Uh, and I remember one time uh, talking to some Christians, they said, do, uh, do Buddhists have angels? And I said, yes. Said, what, do, what do Buddhist angels look like? I said, well one, one looks like an old man, one looks like a sick person, terrible disease. Third Buddhist angel is a corpse, rotting corpse. The fourth is a, is a samana, Buddhist monk or a, a religious person meditating. Because those are strange angels. I mean, not, Christian angels have wings and they play harps and, they, and they're all white and light and beautiful. Uh, those are I like those too. <laughs> Nothing against Christian angels, but, but this is an interesting way to reflect, isn't it? Because these are the signs of awakening in, in terms of Buddhist, uh, uh, Buddhist uh, teaching. It's when you suddenly realize your own mortality, that you're not going to stay young and beautiful and and that life is going to just be an easy ride of pleasure. And that when, when you're not going to get everything you want, and you suddenly realize that something in you, and this could happen at any age, 
It happens sometimes when people are quite young, or even in children. But it's a, it's a kind of awakening of the mind to, to, the mort to our mortality, to the mortal state we're in. Sickness and pain. And then uh, a corpse, a dead body. It's interesting to, how many of you have actually seen a human corpse? Probably not very many. Because uh, these things, like here in, in Europe, we try to uh, prevent uh, anyone from looking at anything that's dead. Even though quite, we have meat markets and things, we, we, we make it look like something else, don't we, with Sainsbury's, and you, you go and look and it's all nicely packaged, you know, there's sprigs of parsley lying on top of it. So you don't even think of it as being a dead body, because if you did, you probably wouldn't want to eat it. But in, uh, but in, in uh, modern Western world, we, we don't want to look at corpses. We try to keep it away from the sight of our children or when we think it's, it, it's something that we, it's frightening or something that's shocking, something that we shouldn't have to look at. And yet in Buddhism, it's called a heavenly messenger, a human corpse. And then, of course, the uh, Buddhist samana, the shaven head and the, and the saffron robe is, a, is the fourth Buddhist angel. You can see there's an increasing amount of Buddhist angels uh, here in, in, uh, <laughs> in this society as we uh, begin to, uh, I've been in England now 23 years, so the increase of existing Buddhist monastics in, in England, for example, is, is noticeable. When I first came, people didn't know the difference between Hare Krishna and Buddhist monks. In fact, they knew, they didn't know anything about Buddhist monks, they only knew about Hare Krishna. So wherever I'd go, I'd, they'd call me Hare Krishna. And now, I don't hear that so much. They say, it's quite common, uh, ordinary to be called, oh, Buddhist monk. Now the these, these awakening signs uh, come in, you know, like I remember in my own life uh, realizing that, the, the, that human life was rather brief uh, and that uh, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't understand what, uh, I wanted to understand what the purpose of it all is for, if there's any meaning to it because it all seemed so shallow on just the, on the, the surface of my social conditioning. And when I contemplated my own life in America and the family I grew up in and the, the expectations of my parents and my society was, was, didn't interest me because it all seemed meaningless to me. Because so much of the emphasis, say, from my generation was to they, they were encouraged to get high, high educations, go to universities, and get good professions, make lots of money. Buy a house, a car, <laughs> and you know the rest. And this was, uh, even, even at, a, at a young age, did not 
mean very much to me. It was not something that that I found uh, that I wanted to devote my life just for uh, doing that. So there was a kind of awakening uh, uh, in in an early part of my life where I questioned the meaning of life and and started looking around, seeing what was uh, what was what how did other people uh, interpret the meaning of their lives? And in those days, in the fifties, in the on the west coast of the United States, there was the kind of beatnik movement, the, there was an a interest in, uh, in existentialism from France, there was uh, a, a lot of uh, cultural contact with Japan, having uh, at the end of the war then there were a, a lot of things, cultural exchanges occurring. So one of the <coughs> great cultural exchange that took place was the interest in Zen Buddhism that occurred in the mid-1950s on the west coast of the United States. So that was, say, my original introduction was through Zen Buddhism, an interest, uh, more of an intellectual interest in Zen. So that was another awakening, something when I first started reading about Buddhism, something in me responded very strongly. Like it, it was a, the arising of faith, or sadha in Pali terms. It's something in you uh, knows at a deeper level that something resonates in your, in your, throughout your whole system through this teaching. Because I'd read many other philosophies and certainly uh, had I'd been brought up as a Christian and also had uh, been interested in philosophy and religion. But it was on this, 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 uh, this particular Zen style that, that uh, particularly op- opened me up to this possibility. And this amounted to the fact that it was a, a reflective way of teaching. In other words, rather than being told what to believe in, or being conditioned into some kind of Buddhist, per se, it was actually a kind of challenge to the mind to, to awaken and to contemplate, to, to use mindfulness and develop wisdom. And this, of course, was very... something... I, I, this I was what I was uh, most interested in doing, because uh, just to be conditioned with another religious doctrine was, was not what I was looking for. I didn't want to, to just have somebody tell me again what I should believe in. But I, wa- I, I felt deeply that there was something that you had to, to find out in some way or other. And how that was possible I didn't know. Didn't, uh, didn't see how one could do it just through thinking, just through analysis. And so this brought, of course, the possibility of Buddhist meditation into my consciousness. Uh, This attitude of looking inward, of introspection, of contemplating experience as it's happening. So then, enlightenment, say, is 
is the experience that happens when we awaken and understand the truth of the way it is through this intuitive awareness rather than through descriptions given to us by others. And it's very uh, interesting the, the Buddhist word Dhamma uh, the translated into English as the truth of the way it is. This is a, oftentimes frustrating for people that want, want to define Dhamma, want to say, well, what exactly, what is this truth? And uh, they say, well, the truth of the way it is. Well, what is the way it is? They say, well, this is the way it is. <laughs> <clears throat> so people would like me to, to, to tell them maybe and, and describe it, or in the particular Buddhist style is this awakening. You have to awaken and realize this truth yourself. So I've just uh, finished yesterday giving a two-week retreat here in the retreat center. Uh, and uh, it was uh, two weeks where about 50 people gathered. We sat there and contemplated the way it is for two weeks. And I encourage them all to... Uh, have noble silence. I mean, they were they were not encouraged to chit chat and talk to each other. There are only eight precepts, so that they they were not uh, reading books, newspapers, watching television, listening to the radio, uh, not chatting to each other. Uh, we set up the retreat in a situ in a style that <clears throat> they didn't have to make choices. You just uh, on the on the externals. You just say, wake up at this time, meet in the retreat center shrine room at this time. We chant at this time. We sit, then we walk, and then we eat breakfast, and then we have lunch, and on and on like this. So, so that uh, there's a schedule listed there. Everybody agrees to follow the schedule, because we don't want to have to spend our time deciding whether we want to do this or not. We just do it. So it's a kind of laid-on style of organized uh, simplicity because what can, how can you make life more simple than just getting up, getting dressed, sitting, meditating, standing, walking, lying down, four postures, contemplating your own breathing and onward like this throughout the day life. It sounds rather boring, I'm sure to most people because uh, it's, uh, it's because we, we think well we what do you do for you know get that sounds really boring maybe I want some excitement something to do but uh, that's the point is to begin to awaken to this impulsivity these kind of wild habits the power of conditioning the momentum of conditioning and habit the way things just pull us and compel us, propel us into all kinds of mental states or attitudes or habits that are sometimes quite self-destructive or, or if not that, if that's too extreme, at least quite negative and can lead towards a lot of anxiety, worry, depression. Because one of the problems of the age, isn't it, in modern affluent countries is... Uh, Stress and depression. When living here at Amravati, one of the 
what you hear, what I hear from most people is the word stress. And I hear the word depression. And that's interesting, isn't it? In a society that is, say, a benevolent one, uh, well-run, it's, it's quite, you know, ordered and well-run, secure, economically, politically, it, it's, uh, you know, compared to other countries, it, it's, uh, it's not that much to, to worry about on a basic level of, you know, our needs uh, for survival. We don't have tyrannical governments or, or dictators or oppressive systems or, uh, you know, economy that where we just have to maybe live our lives just to, to try to scrounge enough food to eat for the, for the day. We can, we can live our lives quite comfortably here in, in Britain uh, by just kind of floating in the system. The, the country, the society doesn't demand very much from us. You can, you can buy on the welfare if you want. So, I mean, in one way we have a life that is uh, quite secure in the terms of what is necessary for survival. But a lot of the, the, the stress and depression problems aren't even from the, the poor elements of this society, but from the middle and upper classes the people that have everything so this is uh, why is this why can't we be happy with with having money property nice things uh, living in a free society democratic system why does if even at its very best when it's all just working perfectly and and everything is, is just exactly what you want. Why are, why are you still discontented? What is that, that need in us, that thing in us, that can never really find contentment, uh, enlightenment, from, the, from, just get, from getting everything that we want? So it's interesting to contemplate the life of a Buddhist monk for example, when, when I went to Thailand in 66, 1966, I, from fairly affluent society, family, to live in a forest monastery in northeast Thailand, which is, was the poorest part of Thailand. And uh, going to live in a forest monastery, which, which uh, in those days, even the local people considered Ajahn Chah's monastery the most difficult monastery to live in. In fact, there was a story among the people in Northeast Thailand. They said, you make, you know, in Thailand it's a, a custom that men should, should spend some time as monks before they get married. Uh, so that uh, this has become has become quite a strong custom so that uh, men at a certain age time men would young men would go off and ask to take temporary ordination usually they do this in the town or village monasteries but then I heard that if you if you ordained with Ajahn Chah and lived at the forest monastery 
For three months during the rainy season, you acquired much more merit than if you were ordained in the other monasteries for a year. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the life was much more difficult there. And then the emphasis was on, on this meditation, on a very simple life with hardly any material comfort. And yet, during my ten years in Thailand and the forest monasteries there, uh, I realized how, uh, you know, how it's a matter of the mind, really, whether you're happy and content. It has nothing to do with much, has not very much to do with, with the food or the amount of comfort and luxury that you have. Because during those ten years, the, the life, uh, on the material level was quite uh, very kind of basic and to learn how to sleep on a mat on a floor when you've been brought up in houses with nice uh, big soft mattresses uh, and to learn how to eat uh, just alms food and once a day you only allowed one meal a day uh, we didn't have air conditioning in the Kutis and Thailand's a hot country and if you, if you were fortunate enough, you might get a little cootie or meditation hut that had screening on it to keep the mosquitoes out. That's if you're really lucky. But if you're a new monk, like I was, you would never get anything like that. You, uh, you didn't have any screens to keep the mosquitoes out. And so uh, you're learning to sleep on a floor and... Uh, and in a, you know, with mosquitoes biting and with uh, um, the alms food was just, had to go around into the villages to gather the alms food on like this. Ajahn Chah kept pointing to where is the suffering? And this was like a koan, a conundrum for me. Said, where is the suffering? They keep saying, is what Papong is the, is the monastery is the forest monastery, is it suffering? And of course, my, my Western conditioned mind says, yes, that's really, you know, a lot of suffering here. It's, it's terribly uncomfortable, and uh, I don't like this, I don't like that. And, it's, and he said, no, no, that's not suffering. <laughs> I kept thinking, well, what, what's the point of that, you know? And it seems like suffering to me. And then I began to realize that the, 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 that the suffering that Ajahn Chah was pointing to wasn't the old man, the, the sick person, the corpse, or the, or the monk. Wasn't getting old, that's not suffering, or being sick and disease, that's not suffering. Death isn't suffering. Being a, 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 a meditator, where a, a person that's looking, you know, that is awakened is not suffering, then what is the suffering that the Buddha emphasized in his first noble truth? And so through contemplating what was going on internally in my mind, I could see it was my aversion, my fear, greed, hatred, delusion that I create onto life. 
And this is quite, quite an a important realization, to begin to know the difference between the way it is, which this realm that we live in, even at its best, is, is quite uncomfortable, just to have a human body, even in a, in a beautiful house, with everything uh, 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 refined and aesthetically pleasing, comfortable. And yet the body, isn't it, still gets hungry, thirsty, gets sick, diseases, pains. So then we, we, we become obsessed with our bodies, you know. Nowadays it's very much to be obsessed with trying to organic foods and all the right medicines, all the right uh, diets and, and uh, certain kinds of grains and, and uh, terrible fear of these kind of uh, uh, modified, uh, genetically modified foods and, and uh, who knows what, things that with DDT on them and, and, and so that the food we eat, even the basic uh, sustenance of our lives, we, we become obsessed with trying to get it perfect, you know, the right kind of diet, the right kind of temperatures, the right kind of clothes, the right kind of everything, just to, to make us feel that maybe we'll be, we'll, we'll be healthy and happy. But in the end of the day, remainder of the day, what happens? We still, you know, the problem has not been solved because we haven't seen the difference between the way it is and what we create, our reaction, our impulsive reaction to experience. So this is very important in, in Buddhist meditation, the awakening process is to begin to realize this for yourself. Because even though I can talk like this, I can say these things, it's still something you have to see. You have to realize, know the kind of suffering you create onto your life. Sometimes our, we don't have that much control over life to make our lives fit a kind of plan that we have in mind. There's, there's always unexpected contingencies, sudden events, uh, unwanted things that just come into our lives out of nowhere, uh, the unknown. And, uh, and life is like this. It's, it's not, you know, even though we would like to know what the future holds for us, the truth of, of it is that we don't know future is the unknown. When we just see ourselves in, in terms of the conditioned mind, when you just identify yourself with your body, what your body looks like, its uh, health, its appearance, complexion, <clears throat> its shape, and so forth, identify with, with the gender, whether you're male or female, identify with, with the, your feelings and thoughts, your opinions and views, your cultural attitudes, then, then we, we live lives that we create suffering because we, ourselves, we see ourselves only in very limited terms. We, we're identifying with things that really aren't what we are. And so, because of that, we, 
we, uh, we never feel very confident about who we are because we don't know who we are. We've not really sat down long enough or looked that directly beyond just the surface, the superficial, the obvious, to a deeper realization. So we have these uh, endless conflicts, like what's happening now in Kosovo. What's this about? Is this about Dhamma and truth and, and uh, what's, what's important in a person's life? About being Kosovar Albanian or Serbian or Muslim or Orthodox Christian or uh, who has the right to that little bit of land, Kosovo? Never heard of it before, actually. <laughs> I never fight for it. <laughs> what is it about, anyway? And uh, have these people contemplated this? Have, they been, have the Devadutas touched their heart, the old man? There's plenty of corpses around, I think. But they don't seem to be, no matter how many people are awakening to, the, to these signs. Or do we just, in a war, do we just get propelled into endless uh, emotional traumas? Because when you see too many horrible things or you do horrible acts, then something in the human mind uh, kind of stops working very well. You become traumatized. And uh, these traumas are, you know, very hard to get through. And you have what they call uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. They, apparently after the Vietnam War, Americans were wondering why so many of the Vietnam veterans didn't seem to be able to fit into the society anymore. They'd come back, you know, sent off to Vietnam when they were about 18, 19 years old, thrown into the midst of battlefields and and probably they subjected to all kinds of horrible things and fears. And then, if they survive that, go back to the United States. And you're supposed to come go kind of fit into, you know, family life again, get a job, and be a normal person. But if you've been in, if you've really known extreme fear, and, and or have committed horrible acts yourself, when you're when you're thrown into such violence and such chaos, then how do you know any of us might not act like that? End up slaughtering people and just just being caught in the momentum of of fear and rage and terror. I've never been in a situation like that. I don't know what I'd do. to be on a, in a battlefield where you don't know where your enemy is and you've been and you've been told you should kill the, the enemy and you don't seem that you just aim at any anything becomes your enemy and then through those violent acts then you go back to quote normal life what happens it's the the, the trauma of, of that you can't just, you just can't pass it off. 
So something in the in the mind doesn't you know doesn't work very well, and and you can't you can't expect these people to just suddenly uh, be normal everyday kind of people again. And yet this happens all the time, isn't it? It's what's happening is genocide uh, or violent crime, serial killers. Just in, in the schools in the United States, we read about teenagers just shooting their mate for no, for no apparent reason other than they're holding on to some kind of plan or plot. Something that they're, some kind of viewpoint that obsesses the mind. So we live in a time where, say, there's not many clear boundaries for behavior. There's not, there's no real moral agreement on how we're going to live with each other. It's all, you know, freedom, uh, do what you like, nobody has a right to tell you what to do, uh, be, uh, you know, any, any kind of law that, that gives, that, that even smacks of limitation is greatly resisted because we really, really want the sense of being free and, and we, we want, we, we think freedom and democracy is the way to deal with, uh, is the best way to live our lives but yet even, with, even within those ideals we lose something because we don't know who we are or how to live our lives. We don't even know what to do with freedom if we have it. You know, we, we, we can totally misuse our life here in Britain, for example, just because we have so much freedom and we don't have to use our life just to survive. We can use it for drugs and just lying about it for crime or for joyriding or whatever. So it is a, a time that, say, even on the religious side in the Western world, for example, there's no, there's no demand, is there, for you to even have moral responsibilities of any sort. There's no kind of moral demand place. I mean, you obey laws about, you know, not stealing and killing because of fear of punishment, uh, but not, but the kind of moral side of it oftentimes is, is no longer even talked about or understood. Spiritual aspiration is no longer held up to us as being anything worthy. Now oftentimes we've seen spiritually aspiring people who have gone to odd or eccentric. So in terms of the social order and the the politics politics of the age is is very much based on power, not on moral commitment. And who's the strongest? Who has the most weapons? <coughs> who can shout the loudest? And then uh, economically, we're trying to create these economic markets where people can get everything they they want provide all the things that we wish for, we, we can get them quite easily. 
and the technology and so forth is giving us all kinds of uh, perks and experiences. And yet the basic gift that we have as human beings, what is that anyway? What is the, the great gift that we have? It isn't in, in being clever and brilliant, is it? Or, or being able to be, make lots of money and get everything we want. But it's in our ability to take responsibility for ourselves. Now this is where a human being uh, flowers, blossoms, where the beauty of our humanity uh, is felt, is when we begin to take responsibility for how we live, what we do, what we say. And we, we, can, we can agree how we're going to live with each other, such as the, the five precepts, the Panchasila of Buddhism, of Buddhism, we all agree to live within the restraint of those five precepts. Now that, even though that can be just seen as a Buddhist custom that you go to the monastery and, and ask the monk to give you the five precepts, and you go, Pana, Dibata, where am I name you? I don't even know what it means sometimes. But it's actually the first precept is I, re I will refrain from intentionally taking the life of another human being. And uh, this is, you know, even though I'm sure most of you don't, uh, you know, are not really prone towards uh, murder, this is a daily kind of temptation. Yeah, this is a very important <laughs> precept, isn't it? I mean, if everybody took the first precept, for a while, you know, if you get all the Kosovar Albanians, all the Serbians, the Americans, British, Tony Blair, <laughs> take the first precept for a while. It also means we're not going to encourage the killing of other human beings. That, that'd be, at least we couldn't do what we're doing. Of course, that's been, uh, that's just been, uh, I'm just speculating. But just pointing to, to the power of a precept. I mean, because we all have that potential for killing as, as part of our human experience. That is... What we do with that emotion. I'm not going to, uh, this is more important to me than, than wealth, power, privilege, and all of that. More important to me to, to use the, to, to keep this precept than to um, get everything that I want. And so there's something very noble in this, in this and, and something that brings us up to a, to a higher level of our human uh, potential. That when we don't, when we just follow uh, our moods, our feelings, our desires, our wishes, then we're thrown about like uh, all over the place because they, they just never, you never get enough. One desire goes on to another. Once you get caught in the momentum of 
wanting and desiring that he just he just go he can't it just goes on and on there's no way uh, out he can of that particular trap except through understanding it and to understand it you need to just stop the momentum and start observing paying attention to life contemplating meditating looking at yourself more, not through a critical mind, but through uh, the awareness of the mind. <coughs> so in the, one thing I found out in the, living in the Northeast Thailand, in what would be considered uh, very primitive, substandard uh, living conditions, by modern terms, here in Western Europe, was that I was quite happy there, actually. And, uh, you know, because of the mind, the, the life of a Buddhist monk was, was something that I admire. I, li I admired good Buddhist monks. And so as I began to, to um, be a good Buddhist monk, I began to feel a measure of self-respect that I didn't have when I was just uh, a, a bohemian university student in Berkeley, California. Just, you know, the idea of being free and living life just for pleasure didn't bring me any self-respect. But living within the, the kind of limitations of Buddhist monasticism, and, and the forest monasteries were quite strict on that level of, of the vinya discipline, very strictly, um, you know, you can't, you're forbidden to do all kinds of things, but within the limitations of that life, I felt free, which was another uh, kind of wonderful realization. That even though I looked like I was limiting myself, kind of tying myself down, it's like being tied to a post or one of these wild horses that they put in a pen, in a corral, you know, where you first, the wild horse just goes wild, more wild than ever. Because I remember when I first became a monk, I, I, I felt more kind of angry and resistant to the limitations. I felt more anger when I became a monk than before I was, when I was a layman. It's like being put in, inside a corral, a kind of wild horse that had not been tamed, just going crazy in, by this, this limited space. But as I calmed down and began to reflect, then I found something I couldn't find when I was just going wild, just following my impulses. I began to find an inner peace, an inner purity, a stillness of mind that I never noticed uh, when I was the free American, free spirit, Californian free spirit living life on my own terms doing what I want free as the breeze the open road nobody to tell me what to do in a country where they they worship freedom and you've given every opportunity to very much 
do what you want. And yet within the uh, restraint of the forest monastery in the Buddhist uh, tradition in Vinaya, which was like holding me down, tying me up to a post, putting me in a corral. Sometimes it was like being nailed to a cross. I began to empathize with Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes they things like they're pounding nails into your hands and feet. And then, then the, then the insight was: Is this suffering pounding nails into my hands and feet, or is the suffering about the resistance, the anger, the resentment that I felt? And so through that, I began to uh, recognize the difference, began to be more capable of seeing the difference between restriction, restraint, and all the rest. And not blame that as the source of suffering, but beginning to see that the real suffering of our human state is, is our own creation around what happens to us. So in terms of a, a life experience, the enlightenment or being able to see clearly the way it is, we think of enlightenment and make it too fantastic, like, like the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, where they, it's like having a continuous flashbulb in your eyes, maybe, you know, going into some kind of ecstatic trance or, you know, like Paul on the road to Damascus, God striking him down, and you fall and go blind into a pit, or some kind of, uh, you know, extreme experience we can think of as enlightenment. And then I contemplated when people take my picture with a flash, you know, too close, I'm looking directly into the flash, it's a stronger light than most of the light that I ever watched. But I also can't see very well with it. <laughs> you know, it's not the kind of light that you can even read a book with. You can't, you just blind you. You know, suddenly they take this and it goes, that. You can't see. Is that enlightenment? You know? <laughs> and then contemplating what, being able to see clearly, to think clearly. And this is like Sammaditsi, Sammasangapo in the Eightfold Path. Being able to have a clear mind, a, a mind that, that is light rather than receiving some kind of enormous big flash or a kind of extreme uh, physical experience. But just the subtlety of a clear moment of being content with the present moment and being awake and being with this moment now. And what is the most useful one? Seeking extreme experiences with, with blinding flashes or learning to just awaken and pay attention to the flow of life as one is living. 
So, to me, this is this is the kind of enlightenment that I'm that I respect. Seeing things clearly, having a clear mind, being able to understand in a in a way that isn't understand a kind of understanding through through conceptual terms, but a understanding that comes through insight, through intuitive awareness and insight. Then the death, because the Vasaka Puja is also about the, the what we call the Parinibbana or the Buddha's final breath. where the body dies. And so death is, is uh, in terms of, this also is something that is going to happen to us all. And this is not something any of us are going to get, up, get out of, physical death. But that is in the future. The physical death will happen in the future. And so these three events, uh, the birth, enlightenment, death, as a reflection on Visakha Puja, helped us to uh, recognize this limitation uh, of this human experience. Birth, if there's birth, there's going to be death. And between birth and death, there's this, this opportunity, an occasion for enlightenment. And that which is born and dies also is not what we are. The body, in, in the, when you really insightfully investigate and look at the, your own body, not through vanity or through cultural conditioning or through modern anatomy or physiology, but through intuitive awareness, through awakened awareness, then you realize the body is, it is what it is not denying its presence, its value, its, what, what it, its good qualities, but we realize there's nothing in it that is really ours. It's all a part of the natural flow of conditions. And so by breaking through the identity, attachment to the physical body, to, to the sense memories we have, the, the uh, opinions and views by, by understanding them in terms of what they really are then we release that or release ourselves from that limitation to realize the deathless reality so the, the Buddha the Prince Siddhartha on his enlightenment realized the deathless he said aparuta de sangamatasa tauradi gates to the deathless are open after his enlightenment. Realize the deathless reality. And so, the, um, this, on this day, see, this is the occasion to, to celebrate our great teacher's life and teaching because I personally feel enormous gratitude toward the historical Buddha. Uh, the, the Buddha that taught the Four Noble Truths, that established the Dhamma Vinaya, 
in India 2,542 years ago. And that he can actually establish something that still survives in modern Britain. It's amazing. Here we are, and, you know, 2,542 years later. <laughs> and uh, practicing, we're not just, you know, culturally fine, and we're not anthropologists studying ancient religions of India. <laughs> that we're actually, you know, dedicating our lives to this, this teaching. Why is that? Because it is, it's, a, it's based on universal reality, it's not a cultural religion. Based on a universal realization, it's, it's beyond any cultural uh, quality or time. Sometimes people say it's an old religion. It's, you know, and it's not a modern, but it's not, it's not really, the term old doesn't make much sense because it's about the way it is. Which is, you know, the way it is, it was the same, the problems that the Buddha pointed to back in India 2,500 years ago, are the same ones we have today. No different. <laughs> and the, the delusions that people have are, I mean, maybe they're, we yeah, have more elaborate, complicated delusions. I don't know. I mean, certainly, but the delusions are delusions. So the, the realization, the enlightenment, is, is the, the potential that we all share and the kind of emphasis that brings us to, say, a Visakha Puja celebration in which we can have this opportunity to gather together as friends and to uh, determine in our lives more clearly to, to uh, awaken to life, to, to use this opportunity that we all share as, as Buddhists or people interested in the Dhamma, so that our lives are not just wasted opportunities, <laughs> but uh, so we begin to see them as a gift, as occasions that we have for learning, understanding, for enlightenment, before the death of this body. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon.